it's my privilege to um, preach this morning, and um, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 12, and the fuse guys, if you'd like to go upstairs, thank you very much. All right, so we're going to continue looking at uh, this out of Mark, uh, some of the questions that Jesus has been uh, asked in the last week of his life. Remember, this is about the Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life, and the Pharisees basically are, are trying to tra tra uh, trap Jesus. And so there are a number of questions they, they ask him uh, that we're going to look at, um, and we, we're looking at another question today. This amazing statement that Jesus makes in response to their challenge about taxes, Jesus makes this amazing statement, and he says, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. And so I'd like to look at the theology of that this morning, and then I'd like to apply it to our nation right now and what we are experiencing as a nation with COVID. How do we render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's? How do we get that balance right between obeying the state and also enjoying freedom to worship as Christians? All right? So that's where I'm going this morning. That's the big picture. But just remember, uh, just to tie into last week, last week we... Um, we looked at one of the stories that follows the, the Pharisees' um, challenge to Jesus about his authority, and we had a look at the parable of the vineyard and the tenants, and we saw some things in that parable about God. We saw that God is generous. We saw that he trusts his people. We saw that he's patient, and ultimately, at the end, there's a sense that God is working towards his justice for all people. And that, that story, that parable tells us about those things. But it also tells us something about Jesus. It shows us that he was one of God's servants in the line of all of God's servants. But really, he was in a, character, a category all of his own as God's son. Uh, ultimately, it tells us that he was destined to die. And most importantly, it tells us that as he was being rejected by the Pharisees, at the same time, he was the cornerstone. He was the most important part of God's redemption plan for every person of faith that believes in Jesus. He's the cornerstone upon which we can build our lives. And so that's what that parable teaches us. And so here today, we're going to look at this incredible story of the challenge that the Pharisees bring about taxes. And so it starts in verse 13, and it says this, so chapter 12, they sent to him some of the Pharisees. Um, and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, <laughs> for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Whenever you get set up, know there's something coming, all right? And so they set up Jesus uh, in this flattery kind of way, and then it says, carries on with their question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing the hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Really, it's an incredible story, and we see the amazing, amazing wisdom of Jesus. And he replies in the most unexpected way that confounds them. And they say, in fact, the scripture records and says they marveled at him. 
But let's just have a look at the portion in a little bit more detail, and then I'll make some more comments out of that. Do you notice there are two groups? There's the Pharisees, and the name Pharisee means separated one. They prided themselves that they were separate from the rest of the people by their religious tradition. And then it says the Herodians were also part of this delegation, which is rather a curious combination because the Pharisees strictly believed the law uh, of God, the written law of God, but they also believed the Torah, which was the, the, the tradition that was, was passed on from one generation to another by the rabbis that taught from the law. So there was a written tradition in the Pentateuch, the five, first five books of the Bible, and then there was the oral tradition that the Pharisees also held to. All right? That brought them into opposition with the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in the oral tradition. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. All right? And then... Both of those groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, opposed the rule of Rome, and they wanted a Jewish nation-state. And um, so we see the Pharisees, first of all, and then we see the Herodians, who are also part of this delegation. And as their name suggests, they are connected to the family of Herod. That's why they're called Herodians. And they depended upon Rome for their authority, and therefore they supported Rome in every way for their authority. So can you see why it's a curious mixture? On the one hand, you have a group that oppose Rome and want to hold to the Jewish law. And on the other hand, you have a group that um, is for Rome and support its rule. And so you can see that the way that this question is posed is to put Jesus into the horns of a dilemma and try and trap him. And whatever way he might answer, it seems like he's going to displease one of those two groups. And against the background of all of this, of course, are the Zealots. And the Zealots were a third group of Jews that were independence fighters. They wanted to throw off the rule of Rome altogether, not pay taxes, and they wanted independence for the Jewish people. And if you see in the history of, of the Jewish nation, there were many revolts led by the Zealots that were ruthlessly put down by the Romans. And there were many people that died in, in those rebellions. And so... I find that interesting because we still have this kind of tension played out in our culture today. On the one hand, you have religious formalists who hold to the formal tenets of religion, and you have secular humanists on the other. And uh, I've seen many times that those two groups still combine together, although they've got nothing in common and they oppose each other in so many ways, when they want to oppose the preaching of the gospel, formal religion and secular hu humanism combine, and they attack Christian the freedom of the gospel and the pure gospel of Jesus. We still have that tension uh, in, our, in our culture today. So that's the first thing I want to say. Secondly, can we look, uh, take a moment to look at this issue of taxation that uh, Rome imposed on those under their rule? There were three kinds of taxes that they had to pay. The first was a ground tax. And that consisted of one-tenth of all the grain and one-fifth of all the wine that was produced. And that was paid to the Rome, Romans partly in kind and partly in money. So that's what the farmers had to pay that tax. Secondly, there was an income tax that every single person had to pay, 1% of their income annually. They paid that as well towards Rome. And then thirdly, there was a poll tax. And this again was required of all men from age 14 to 65 and all women from age 12 to 65. They paid this tax, which was one denarius, one day's wage annually, just for the privilege of being alive. That's and living under Roman rule. They played a poll tax. As you can see, no wonder they wanted to trap Jesus because taxation was a big deal for anyone who lived under Roman rule. It really was a big deal. And it was a major 
drain on resources for every single person living in a Roman province. But notice too in the story that the Rhodians and the Pharisees begin with flattery. They say, teacher, we know that you're true and you don't care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Isn't it true that it's amazing to me that even though they're flattering Jesus, they're speaking the truth. They don't even know that they're speaking the truth, but they are. They're trying to flatter him, set him up. They're trying to get him not to be suspicious of their intentions. But secondly, they're trying to make it impossible for Jesus to avoid giving an answer without losing his reputation. That's what they're trying to do. Either his reputation with the people or his reputation with the religious tradition. And verse 15, Jesus, it says that Jesus sees straight through their trickery, straight through their hypocrisy, and he says, why are you trying to trap me? Even so, they, they are devious, and this is a masterpiece of cunning, really. Uh, if Jesus said it was lawful to pay taxes to Rome, the people would reject him and his, his ministry would be undermined. And then if he said it was unlawful, he could be accused as a traitor of the people and a, um, a traitor of uh, Rome and be arrested as a revolutionary. So they must have thought that they pretty much nailed Jesus with this question. And here, thirdly, let us consider his absolutely remarkable answer. And why I say it's remarkable is because in the history of thinking, no one had ever thought of this before. If you look at Greek tradition, Roman tradition, there was always nation states that had some kind of divine um, um, significance. So Caesars were, were, were worshipped as divine, as gods. And so Jesus simply in this brilliant, brilliant way, he says to them, show me a coin. And they show him a denarius, and he says, whose image is on the coin? And the image would have been of Tiberius, because we know Tiberius was the reigning emperor at that time. And all emperors were called Caesar. And around the coin, we can tell from archaeology, would have been these words, declaring the coin was of Tiberius Caesar, the divine Augustus, the son of Augustus. And on the other side of the coin would have been this title, Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest of the nation. So both the, the Roman rulers claimed divinity, that they were gods, and that at the, when you worshipped Caesar you, as the ruler of the state, you worshipped him as God. And so this really, really is a significant thing, and we must understand uh, what power coinage had in the ancient world. Whenever a battle was fought or a land was conquered and people were, def were defeated, the victor, the king, the emperor would print, immediately print a coin. And that was the final guarantee of his rulership and his kingship over that, that land. And wherever the coin was valid in terms of currency, the power of the, that king was validated. So in other words, a king's power could be seen and measured by the lands that were using the currency that, he, that was on the coin that he printed. And third... Because the coin had the image of the emperor or the king on it, it was held in some sense to be his personal property. So there's three things about coinage in the ancient world. And so when Jesus answers them and he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, he's really saying this. He's saying, you are using the coins of Tiberius, and so you do recognize his political power in Palestine because you are using the currency. And apart from that, it's his property, and so when you are paying taxes, you are giving back to him what is already his, and so you are re really returning what is his property anyway, 
But at the same time, this is the radical part of what Jesus says. He says, remember that in paying your taxes and your tribute to someone who's in earthly authority over you, there's a realm of your life that belongs to God that has nothing to do with Caesar. Yes? And Jesus was the first person ever in the history of thinking to introduce the idea that the state and God, worship to God are separate and should always be separate. And so, in one sentence, Jesus offers the possibility of being loyal to Caesar without being loyal to Caesar's religion. I can put it another way by saying that he, in one fell swoop, introduces the, uh, the rights of the state, and at the same time, liberty of our conscience to worship God. And so I just want to unpack that a little bit more, because when we look at the whole New Testament, there are three things that the Bible teaches in the New Testament about the individual and the state. And uh, you can look for these. I don't have time to unpack it all this morning, but Romans 13, we're going to look at. But there's also a portion in 1 Timothy 2, the first six verses of 1 Timothy 2, and 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 17. But in Rome, Romans 13, the first seven verses say this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, only to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subject, subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of your conscience. For be, because of this, you pay taxes to, to, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. It's very plain, very clear what Paul writes here in Romans 13. So Paul's making a very basic point. He's saying this. Here's the main point. Without the laws of the state, good government becomes impossible and chaos ensues. In that picture that we put up of um, Cambodia, did, did you see that 4 by 4 that was in the big pothole? Buna wrote to me and he said, this is the result of poor leadership. This is absolutely right. Poor leadership for a long time. What happens? Basic things start to fall apart. Refuge re removal falls apart. Fixing roads falls apart. And then things like that happen. When a disaster comes, it's even worse than it should be. And so, as human beings, we can't live together unless we agree to obey the laws of living together. And without the state, there are valuable services that we would not otherwise enjoy. So, for example, water supply, sewage system, transport system, etc., etc., etc. And the state is, should be the provider of many of the things that make our lives livable. Secondly, from that portion, we can see Paul is saying this. No one can accept all the benefits of living in a state and then opt out of all the responsibilities. He's saying that quite clearly. And for all the, the ruthlessness that Roman rule brought to the ancient world, it's also true that Roman rule brought with it peace and security that the ancient world had not known. It was by oppression 
that's absolutely true. But for the most part, the seas were cleared of pirates. The roads were mostly secure. Nations that had been at civil war and at war with each other were mostly at peace because they were under common rule of Rome. And there was a Roman legal system that was put in place that ensured there was some justice that was meted out in that uh, culture. Now, we take for granted law, don't we? But can you, the ancient world, there was no, not law as we know it. And it was lawless, completely lawless. And so they did bring this uh, Pax Romana, which means the peace of Rome, which certainly was an oppressive um, rulership over people, but it did bring at the same time a peace that they had not enjoyed before. So that whatever Roman province you lived in, you could raise your family, you could have your business, and you could travel safely. That's what Roman rule did bring. What did Rome ever do for us is the joke, isn't it? Well, actually, Rome did a lot for us. And so that's still true today, that we can't receive all the benefits of living under a state and the benefits that the state gives without opting. We can't opt out of all the responsibilities of citizenship. So that's two things that the New Testament certainly teaches. The third thing that it certainly teaches is this. There's a limit to the state's authority. There's a limit to the state's authority. Now, when I was growing up in South Africa, uh, we were all required to go and do national service, which was um, to do two years of your life as a young man to go and serve in the army. If you refused to do that, there were a number of punishments for you. If you refused completely to go to the army, you were sent to do community service for seven years. So I had friends who were doctors, for example, that didn't want to serve in, in the army. I had other friends that uh, out of their conscious um, decision didn't want to go to the army, and they were, uh, had to do seven years national service. I chose not to be a combatant in the army because uh, it, it was interesting. I had to appear before a council, of, of a military council, and say why I wouldn't take up arms. You weren't allowed to object on political grounds. So you had to, you had to object on uh, grounds of conscience or grounds of pacifism. And so I appeared before this military tribunal in, in Grahamstown, and I said, I, I cannot with clear conscience bear arms and go into the townships. I do not believe this is just according to God's rule. You know what they quoted to, to me? Romans 13. So I know what it's like to stand up against the state and say I will refuse because of my conscience. I know what it's like. We are not in that stage right here in our nation right now, not by a long, long shot. And so for me, we have, to, we have to be good citizens at this time, but there is still a limit to God's authority. And Jesus points that out. He says to them, on the, he says, uh, just as there is Caesar's image upon the coin, all of us are created in God's image. And it points to Genesis 1.26, God created them in his own image. And what Jesus is really saying is, because of that, every human being on the face of the planet firstly belongs to God. Do you get it? So both the state and the individual is under the authority of God. And so it, the inevitable conclusion is that the, when the state remains in its proper boundaries and remains true to serving its citizens, individuals should give their loyalty and their service to the state. But both the state and individuals belong to God. And then when, when the state demands things of us that God is not saying, our loyalty comes first to God. Every time. 
But it remains true that ordinary circumstances, faith in Jesus should make you a better citizen of a nation, not a worse citizen of a nation. So can I try and now apply this to what we are facing in our nation uh, right now? Because I see in the story both a, an affirmation to us and a warning to us. Jesus' response to the Pharisees and the Rhodians commits us as his disciples to play our part in society. We are called to be good citizens. We are called to make governing easy as much as possible. But the warning of the story is that it's sometimes so, so easy to get caught up in all the details that you begin to lose the bigger perspective of what God is calling you to do. And that's the main contribution that we have as Christians. We are all made in the image of God. Our commitment to Him is the highest that any individual human being is, can be expected to have. Everything else is worked out in the light of that commitment to God first. And once we lose that bigger perspective, we just become the same as every other single group fighting about things in society. And governments um, need the consistent reminder that Christians and Christian faith can give, that ultimately it's God who reigns and that all politics and policies should be worked out in relation to that. So I want to just summarize some of these things and quote uh, uh, some of an article that I wrote this, read this uh, week by a guy from Danny Webster from the Evangelical Alliance who was just commenting around all of these things that we are facing in our culture in our nation. Um, and he was talk, commenting on the first lockdown that we had and uh, said that of one of the things that we learned, um, uh, I'm just going to quote him, much of the discussion is focused on the economic costs, but there's a growing realization that the impact is f felt far more widely, not, on least, not least on children's education, on mental health, and the social and spiritual welfare of the population. And then he says, and I'm summarizing, he says there are three things which we are to consider at this time in terms of restrictions. First, are they necessary? And that's part of the debate, isn't it, that we've seen in, the, in, the, in, the, in, our, in our raging in our press for, for so long. Some commentators are skeptical whether these things are necessary, and so they'll quote Sweden, for example, which took a completely different approach to our, uh, what we took here. And so some people are saying, well, is it really necessary on the one hand? Secondly, uh, those that are saying it is, is necessary uh, to stop the spread of the virus, this consideration as to the, the measures that are being taken, are they effective? That's the second question. Are they effective? And so there's been lots of debate about should we, should we close pubs at 10 and all that kind of stuff. It's not going to create a bottleneck of people all leaving at once, using public transport, etc., etc. So that's, that's the other part of the debate. Uh, if it's, you think it's necessary, then how effective are the measures? And third, there's the consideration of the negative effect of those particular measures over a long period of time. And so our government has made it quite clear that for them, it's mo most important to keep schools open because of uh, the welfare of the children and also the ability of parents to work. So that's a primary consideration for, for our uh, government at the moment. And so there's this debate that ranges what's most, what's most effective, what measures are least damaging, and these are all political disagreements that are, are valid and legitimate, and we have to weigh them up as we go forward. But then he goes on and he says this, the polarization of opinion seen in, the, in politics and the press of either wanting to lock down everything or let the virus rip through the population is unhelpful as very few people hold that view at either pole. 
which is absolutely true. I would agree with that. So he goes on and he says, As Christians engaged in public debate at this time, it's vital that we are aware of these dynamics and where our opinion and experience places us. Here's the important part. We should seek to engage with grace, wisdom, and discernment, and understanding that we, um, that we will disagree about how to interpret the situation and the best course of action in response. Yeah? If you disagree with someone, disagree with grace, engage with them with grace, wisdom, and discernment. And then he carries on and he says, specifically in how these rules apply to churches, it's also important to see that our response will be influenced by the same questions about the values and purpose of lockdown. Are they effective? And what are their negative consequences? For some, it means there's a greater willingness to accept restrictions because they are viewed as both necessary and effective. And for some, the restrictions are felt more severely than others. So this has an impact, an impact on how Christians read and apply teaching related to governing authority and how this interacts with defending and promoting the importance of religious freedom. Here's the important part. If you think measures are more highly effective and, and only have limited impact on your religious freedom, then you are more likely to welcome them. Whereas, if you are dubious about their effectiveness and view them as restricting your religious freedom, you will be more resistant. Yeah, it's an important part. It's not, however, simply a matter of our theological position or our support for political parties. It's intertwined with our approach to science, our personal experience, the tradition which we worship, and many other factors. And so he carries on, and he says this in conclusion, in how we respond and how we judge the government's actions, we need to know the cost and respond with grace to those who view things differently. Whether this is relating to the wider political discussion or restrictions specific to churches, one more time, we should act with grace and pursue truth. We should cherish the freedom that we have to worship dearly and continue to stand with those across the world from whom it is withheld. I want to land there with one more quote from Jesus. I love Jesus, such a wise, wise, wise person. What did he say in Mark? We're going to get there eventually, Mark 12, 28. Again, it's one of the times the scribes are trying to trap Jesus, the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus, and they come and say, which commandment is the most important of all? Seems like a valid question, isn't it? Which is the most important commandment? You're a great teacher, Jesus, tell us. And Jesus answers, the most important is this. Hear, Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength. And the second is this, you will love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than this. And so, for me, as someone living in this time together with you, the most important consideration for all of us right now is how do I love God with all of my heart? And how do I love my neighbor as myself with all of my heart? In other words, in how I behave, what I choose to do, how I choose to respond, is it gracious? Is it kind? How you choose to respond to someone who disagrees with you shows a lot about who you really are. Are you unkind? Do you dismiss them? Do you make fun of them because they have a different opinion? No, Jesus says, love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor like you love God with all of your heart. So, in conclusion, what's good for 
All of us. What's good for our neighbor? What is the highest call of love that we can obey right now as God's people as we seek to worship together and encourage others to join us? I'm so thrilled that we're having to look at a second meeting because more people are signing up than than we can fit in here. Isn't that cool? People want to worship even with the restrictions that we have. And so let's, let's go for it. Let's make a plan. Let's have a second meeting. Let's get as many people through these doors as we can so that we can see Jesus glorified. So it's not necessarily about my rights or what I think is best or what I can or cannot do. It's about what really is good for other people that might be in a different situation for, for me right now. It's about responding with kindness and grace, especially to those who might disagree with me. So here's the thing. Maybe that should be a little, a little mantra for all of us. Is what I say right now kind? Is it necessary? Is it showing grace? Is it helping someone? Is it encouraging them? Is it building them up? Is it helping them to find courage for their life? Or is it doing the opposite? If it's doing the opposite, rather zip and don't say. Because God wants us to encourage each other and build each other up so that together we find a way through this. Amen. And this is going to, it's going to be with us for at least another six months. So let's make a plan now. Let's, let's in, our, in our heart, decide a strategy of what we're going to do and how we're going to treat people because it's going to be with us for a while. It's not going to get easier. It's probably going to get more difficult. So let's make a plan. Let's decide. Let's let the Scripture speak to us. The Holy Spirit change our hearts so that we can do what God has called us to us. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Render unto God what is God's. Amen. God bless you. Let me pray. Father, I want to thank you for your call on our lives. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your favor. Thank you that we could worship this morning freely in this place. And Lord, with all that we still face as a nation, I want to pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that we would have wisdom from heaven, that in everything we do, we might learn to treat each other with the kindness that you've extended to us and the grace that you've extended to us, particularly where we differ. And I know, Lord, even in families, we have different views about these things. So help us, Lord. Help us to hear your heart. Help us to hear your spirit speaking to us that we can respond with goodness and kindness to every single person. I pray, Lord, that we would see this place overflow, with people coming to worship. I thank you, Lord, that in the future we might have to have two meetings. That's such a wonderful problem to have. God, we thank you, and we ask, Lord, that you continue to build us together as one people at this time that truly would be unified by the power of your spirits. And so I want to thank you for all that you've done in us this morning, all that you want to do through us as we live our lives. And I pray that we would live courageously this week, that we would live with confidence, knowing that you're with us and your spirit is upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone says, Amen.